folks and thanks for tuning in for another week of the rec poker podcast this is the forums edition our listeners know we do a chats edition once a week where we uh, talk to a different member of the poker world and ask them questions and then we also do a forums edition where we kind of focus on the strategy involved in poker and uh, we'll take a spot or a hand or a post from the forums at rec.poker that are free to join so i'll encourage everyone to go and get a free rec poker account right now all it takes is an email address and a smile and it's a great way to get involved in the home games, in the forum posts. Uh, you can join our Discord channel, uh, join the podcast live on YouTube um, when we record the Chats Edition every Monday night at 7.30. Um, of course, because most of what we do is free here at Rec Poker, we're largely a volunteer organization. I have to thank our sponsors, Mark Bershon and uh, the website AMP. And of course, everyone over at the Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack, and Casino. Thank you so much for all your support. Um but it's not just the uh, sponsors that I have to thank. It's uh, Wrecking Crew members. Uh, they, you, you probably know my voice best because they give me the mic on Monday nights. But I'm just one of a Wrecking Crew. It takes a whole village to do what we de- do here at Wreck Poker. Uh, so I'm uh, Jim Reed, Bluffsterini in the home games and at Wreck Poker Jim on Twitter. But if you want to find out more about me and the rest of the Wrecking Crew, you can go to wreck.poker slash crew. Or you can just listen up because you'll meet a couple of them tonight. I am John Somsky, and I am Poker Geek MN everywhere. And I'm Rob Washam, and I'm Rabman50 just about everywhere. And uh, the only missing piece of the puzzle is our premium members. Uh, there's the, like I say, go get that free community account at rec.poker today. But if you want to take it to the next level, uh, that $15 a month that, that you pledge as a premium member helps us out a lot, helps us keep the lights on around here, uh, keeps uh, the infrastructure that we need going. And it's a great way to say thanks for putting all the Rec Poker stuff out there and to keep us going. Uh, so folks like Josh here, who's joining us in the chat tonight, all our premium members are welcome to come and join in, uh, whether it's the book study that Rob's doing, uh, Chris Jones's deep dive seminar every month, uh, my own study groups, our strategy discussions. There's just a ton of ways to get involved with our premium membership, not to mention the archive of all the great sessions we've done and some of the really premium training material from other uh, training sites out there around the world, uh, the best material available uh, at the highest level of poker learning. They share that with our Rec Poker Premium members as well. So if you want to be like Josh Campbell, who's uh, ascending in the poker world, it's not just the Thursday night uh, fun country online playing hangs, uh, but Josh is also uh, a regular in our Tuesday night online playing hangs, and it's fun to have him here on the show tonight. Uh, so yeah, so go and check all that out. So it's Monday night, which means that we are going to be pulling a forum post from the Rec.Poker forums. We're going to switch it up a little bit this week. We've just finished our book study, End Game Poker Strategy by Darrow Carney and Barry Carter. Uh, we've spent the last few months going through this chapter by chapter. Rob Washam leads our book study every two weeks on the first and third Wednesday of the month. And it's been uh, his mission to take us through some really phenomenal poker books over the last few years. End Game Poker Strategy was the most recent one. And uh, I think this was a really good insight for a lot of our uh, recreational listeners for just how important ICM and the the not the sort of 
the knock-on effect of knowing ICM or the people in your table maybe not knowing ICM and how important that can be to, to your game. So Rob, you were kind enough to volunteer to take our listeners behind the premium membership curtain a little bit here and talk about some of the lessons that you've learned, some of the interesting discussion items that came up in the group uh, over the course of the last few months looking at this book. So uh, let's just start with that. Now, I know you don't choose the books. You put a short list of books out there, and it's a democracy. The the poker, the rec poker members choose. And uh, you must have been excited when this one got chosen, though, because I know you've been looking forward to reading this one. Yeah, anytime you have an opportunity to study anything by Dara Carney, you you know it's pretty good. Uh, there's a couple more books that he's that's out there that I I definitely like to get into also. So um, this was fun. Um, like I said, like you said, we we let our members decide what book we're gonna do, and then and from my standpoint, I don't really care what book we do because I'm gonna learn something either way. And it's going to be a fun discussion either way, because we're going to have, you know, people that are are interested in the subject matter and they're going to come along and, and we're going to have some great discussions and we're going to find some rabbit holes that we're going to dive into. And <laughs> it's a lot of fun. So. Well, and I know if folks would uh, the next book that we're going to be doing is The Poker Brain by Matt Matros, as we're recording this in November of 2022. It's not too late to join that discussion. If you're a premium member at Rec Poker, you can come and join us on the first and second, first and third Wednesday of every month. But if even if you are behind a bit, uh, you can go and check out the archive where you can check out the videos of all the past sessions that Rob has done with the group here. And um, I don't remember exactly how many sessions we did with endgame poker strategy but there's definitely a fair number of videos there if people can go back and sort of use the 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 notes that rob puts together as well rob does these amazing care uh chapter summaries and slides that we use to kind of summarize the points and guide the conversation and uh, folks will get a lot out of that i think it's great work that you do with these book studies rob it was 11 sessions mm. mm-hmm. only half as many as we did for the uh um, oh, for modern poker theory? For modern yeah. poker theory, yeah. My that was like intense. That. Oh, man. <laughs> that was... <laughs> Your head made my head explode. Yeah, a lot of good stuff in there, too, but it was slightly denser reading than... Uh, yes. You, you, yeah. Now, you need a group to get through something like that, I think. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> well, let's talk, let's talk about this book. Mm-hmm. Some of the things, you know, it's Endgame Poker Strategy, the ICM book. So the first thing you want to know is what is ICM? right? Well, ICM is the independent chip model is what those three initials stand for. That doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know if it means anything to you, but independent chip model, what the heck does that mean? Yeah. Help help us understand. Yeah. Basically what it is, it's the difference between the value of the chip itself as opposed to the value the chip has within a tournament. So the monetary value of a chip in a tournament. So a chip by itself has no monetary value in a tournament. It's just a way of keeping track of who's ahead and who's behind. And, and whoever ends up with all the chips at the end is going to get the first prize. Right. But that the chips are not a one-to-one relationship to the money that they are worth. And so the independent chip model is an attempt to make a put a monetary value on the chips that you have in a tournament so that's all it means so when you're playing in a cash game a chip is worth whatever it's worth 
when you're done at the cash game, you take that chip to the cage and you're going to get that monetary value back one for one. That is not the case in a tournament. You get 10,000 chips at the beginning of a tournament, you pay $100 for those chips. They're not worth $1,000, obviously, or $10,000, obviously. So um, there's there has to be some way of monetizing the value of those chips. And that's what the chip independent chip model is attending to do. Yeah. So Rob, if I'm playing in a cash game and I buy in for $200, I've got a five, I've got a a red $5 chip. I can take that to the cash and it's worth $5 no matter when it is. If I buy in for a tournament and I've got 10,000 chips in front of me, uh, I can't just trade that out later for my buy-in. It's worth a certain portion of the prize pool. And as more people get busted out of the tournament, um, you know, there's fewer people uh, still in it. So your stack, your your seat kind of has a little more value than it did before. And, um, uh, you know, you, you'll find that uh, your very last chip actually has more value than all the chips above it in your stack because it's the one that takes you out of the tournament. So in a way, sort of the extra chips that you keep gaining are even less valuable than sort of some of the last chips that you have remaining. So this ICM model is, as you say, it's kind of just a way to decide how, how to value your stack and, and the chips within your stack. Yeah. And to your point, the the more chips you have, the less each chip is worth on a monetary value. That what? last chip that you have is worth the amount of equity you have in that tournament. And even if, even though it's only one chip. John? Yeah, let, let, let's clarify a little bit what that really means because in reality the chips have no value inherently in themselves but it's all about the probability that you have to regain make one of the prize winning spots in the tournament so if you have 50 percent of the chips in play then you and let's say it's a three person tournament you have half the chips and two other people have 25 percent of the chips well you are probably twice as likely to take first place as they are in that particular uh, event. However, your chips are not worth twice as much because there's probably also a second place prize. So you kind of just average out what probability you are to finish in each place. And then that goes to the values of your chips. And as it turns out, the more you chip, more chips you get, you only hit a certain threshold. You never get to 100% probability of taking first place. So there's kind of a max. And that's where Rob is talking about your every chip you earn in a tournament is worth less to you monetarily than the chip you earned before. Yeah, it's counterintuitive. It can make your brain melt a little, but uh, that's exactly <laughs> the right way to be thinking about it. Yep. So knowing these things about the value of chips and how they change and how the accumulation of chips changes the value of each chip. Um, there's a few points within the tournament where this becomes very, very important. It's not so important at the beginning because your equities are going to be spread out amongst all of the other players at the tournament. But as players are eliminated, um, the value of your chips are going to increase because the equity that you have in the tournament is going to increase the fewer players that are left. This becomes really, really important at the bubble. Mm. So at the bubble, um, 
the ICM factor at the bubble is as great as it's ever going to be. So there's two places, really. The bubble of the tournament itself between cashing and not cashing and at the bubble of the final table where the bigger payouts are going to occur. So there are two really um, important points, ICM intensive, they call them ICM intensive points, are at the bubble of the tournament where you cash or not cash and at the final table where the um, payouts become greater and greater. And and part of the what we're talking about there is that in the it's the cost of busting essentially. This isn't really what it means, but this might help our listeners kind of think about it a little bit. Um, if you bust in the first orbit of a tournament, yeah, it stinks. You you lose the tournament. You lost your bottom chip. But if you'd busted a hundred places later, you still would have busted before the money. And the difference between busting in the first orbit and the tenth orbit isn't really that different. But if you bust two hands before the bubble breaks, that is a very different outcome than if you bust two hands after the bubble breaks. So the value of your chips, the, and, and in this case, I mean, your stack of chips, really your bottom chip, uh, the value of your stack is much greater um, in that kind of an instance. You, the, the cost of busting just before the bubble is greater than the cost of busting just after the bubble. So you should value your stack. You should value your tournament life more. And what that means is that you should kind of play differently than when ICM is a strong factor than when ICM is not a strong factor. Is that a fair way of getting at it there, Rob? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, what you're, What we're talking about is there are decisions that you're going to make that are chip EV decisions. And this is what you see in most of the training and most of the things that you do. You're you're looking at ranges. What's your equity versus this guy's range, this range? Those are all chip EV decisions. So when you got a uh, when you're in a tournament, and especially at the high leveraged uh, uh, fat, you know, ICM spots like the bubble, you have to think about not just a general chip EV, but how what is the monetary EV of your decision? So in those types of situations, you can't go just by the chip EV. You have to look at what is your, what they call the bubble factor. Mm. So in other words, if you, if in a chip EV situation, you're a 55% favorite, um, you should call if you have a 55% equity that might not necessarily be true in a bubble situation where you might need 60 to 65% equity to make the call uh, because of the monetary value or the equity that you have in the tournament at that time. So it changes the decisions that you make um, from strictly chip EV to more of a equity uh, tournament equity EV that you need to take into consideration when you're making those decisions. So, so some of those adjustments that I think our player, our listeners are going to be most familiar with, and this is kind of intuitively obvious as well. When the bubble's getting close, if there are people all in in front of you, you probably should fold some of the hands that you might otherwise call with, because while you might be getting the right price to call under certain circumstances, um, if if part of the risk of calling is that not only will you lose this hand, but you might bust out of the tournament, 
then you're going to play tighter than you would otherwise and that's and that's technically correct to do so 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 calling a little tighter in spots like this is going to be one adjustment that people kind of intuitively make um but there are other adjustments that, that when it comes to how you how you act as the original razor um hands that you might choose to uh shove with instead or that sort of that sort of thing um rob when you were going through the book here I think a lot of people kind of intuitively understand that we should be tightening up near the bubble. What were some of the sort of other less intuitive uh, lessons that Dara and Barry uh, put together for us? Um, it's the uh, the bubble factor is is the is the key um, computation that you would use to determine. Now, this is something you would do off the table, but the bubble factor is what influences your calling equities. Now, one of the things that you um, need to take into consideration is that you can play very aggressive. Um, you can be the aggressor, but when it comes to calling, a uh, calling decision is much uh, tighter than a aggressive action. So in other words, an aggressive action, you could miss the uh, range that you should be making that action with by five or six pips and still be okay uh, and ve lose very little equity. Whereas if you make a calling decision and are off by one pip, it can have a huge effect on the, the equity that you have in that tournament. So that was one of the, um, I guess, a light bulb moment that you don't really think about as much. The calling mistakes are much greater uh, effect on your equity than a, than a call, uh, betting or raising mistake. Yeah, and we, um, we we talk about like the different kind of errors we can make. Um, if you want right. to put them into either raising errors, calling errors, or folding errors, um, you've said before, Rob, that overfolding doesn't cost you that much. Shoving a little lighter than you should doesn't cost you that much because after all, you're going to get a lot of folds a lot of the time anyway. Um, but the really expensive mistakes are calling incorrectly, calling too light. Um, Correct. because then you're actually going to realize your equity. Um, you, you know, when you fold, you just get to move on to the next hand. When you shove, there's a chance that everyone else is going to fold. And when you're the one calling the shove, then there, there are no other outcomes. The only way to win the hand Correct. is by having the best hand. Uh, so Correct. that can, that that's the most expensive kind of mistake to make. So is it, was, uh, the calling mistakes so large because you have no fold equity then? Was that well, why? It, it probably I would I would think that would be one of the reasons. It's just the general, um, the charts that that Dara or Dara and Barry put together were created using Holden Resources Calculator and whatnot, and they they looked at the difference of your equity in the tournament um, based on calling with all of the different hands that you could call with. And so there was, you know, there was minus equity all the way around. And then the plus equities were the ones that you were, um, you would consider calling with. Now, if you're off by one pip, the equity between that one pip and the pip in front of it was huge. I mean, it was big, a big gap in equity. Whereas when you were jamming, uh, the, the change in equity between one pip to the next pip was minuscule. So that's where it's it's the amount of equity that you gain or lose uh in the tournament based on whether you're shoving or calling 
And, and Rob, when you say one pip, you mean the difference between shoving with like ace 10 versus ace jack or king Correct. jack versus ace jack, where the rank of the right. cards are off by one. Um, Correct. So the difference between shoving with ace 10 or shoving with ace jack is smaller than the difference between calling with ace 10 and calling with ace jack. Correct. Correct. So if, in other words, if the, if your threshold was you should jam with ace jack and you decided to jam with ace eight, it's not that big a mistake. Whereas if you, if your calling range was ace jack and you called with ace 10, you're making a much bigger mistake than that guy that jammed with ace eight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it just goes to show you, and I think, you know, John kind of got at it earlier here as well. That's um, a lot of poker hands end without going to showdown. So there's a lot of very few poker hands actually end up being resolved by showdown. And so that's that's the the way to lose a tournament <laughs> is by having to actually, you know, compare your hand to the other person's hand at showdown. And the only the better hand can win. If you can avoid that by folding or by shoving so other people fold. Um, it's just not as likely that you're going to uh, exit the tournament in, under those circumstances. Yeah, another thing that you got to have to consider is your stack size. Um, mm. Your bubble factor is actually the biggest if you're a medium stack because you are putting yourself in a situation where you could become a short stack and be one of the next players out. So you need to look around, see where you are in relation to everybody else in the tournament. If you're about a, if you're a medium stack, then it's you have a much higher bubble factor. In other words, you need a lot more equity to get involved in a hand. If you're the short stack, you don't need as much equity to get ahead because you're the one that's a, probably going to go out in the next. You know, you're the next one that potentially would go out anyway. So there's not you're not risking as much equity if you make a play. And again, if you're the big stack, the only time that you have an equity disadvantage if you're going against another big stack that could knock you down to be a short stack. So the big stacks and the short stacks really don't have as much uh, bubble factor as that medium stack. So if you're a medium stack, you got to play a little bit tighter than the short stacks or the big stacks, which is something that you might not consider. And I know a lot of people don't consider in the tournaments that I play in. I see them playing just like Chippy V all the way across the board, regardless of their stack size. Yeah, and I think people, if they use an example of a final table, let's say there's nine players left and the bubble bursts at, after the ninth player. So the ninth player gets zero, the eighth player gets $10 and you know all the way up to first place getting uh, $1,000 or something like that. So in this case, if you're the short stack nine-handed, um, it's kind of likely that you're going to be the next one to bust. If everyone in the law of averages, if everyone just keeps trading cards around, eventually you have a better a better chance of busting than the medium strength or the uh, medium stack players. So it's kind of a, an ICM disaster if you're a medium stack player and you get taken out before the shorter stacks because Correct. there was no need for that to happen. You could have just played a more disciplined, tighter game, let the short stack bust, and then you get to ladder up. You get to make money just by folding your way to to that next ladder. Whereas the uh, the the short stack, they they don't feel that kind of pressure because they're kind of the next one to go out anyway. So that that ICM pressure, as you say, is felt more keenly by the medium stacks and the smaller the big ones. 
Correct. Which leads me to the next part of this is laddering versus playing for the win. Now, mm. uh, this is something that a lot of people, you hear a lot of people will make a play saying, well, I was playing for the win. But that's not necessarily the right way of looking at it. Um, don't factor in what pay jumps mean to you personally when laddering. Instead, think about the current equity and the equity you already have realized. So in other words, a pay jump of, let's say right now you're already guaranteed to make $5,000 in this tournament. The next pay jump is, is uh, $7,000. So instead of thinking of that $7,000 and, and, and thinking of laddering up that $7,000, you're not you're laddering up $2,000 because you already have the $5,000. You're at the stage of the tournament where you've already won the five. So you're not really playing for that five anymore because that's already there. You're playing for that two. So you have to consider that when you're talking, when you're thinking about um, laddering up. So when you're, so again, then playing for the win is another, another fallacy that people have. Uh, Dara used a uh, an example from the book where he came to day two at the final table with the shortest stack. And because of his experience with sit and goes, now sit and goes is where a lot of people really gain a lot of ICM knowledge because there's it's you're constantly at a final table. You're constantly at a final table. So people play you could play a lot of tournaments and never make it to a final table so you don't have that experience of being in an ICM intensive situation so he had that experience so he knew how to play that small stack and he watched everybody else go after the chip leader even though the chip leader had a huge amount of chips they were going for the win they wanted to attack that chip leader well that chip leader one at a time took everybody out and it ended up Dara ended up heads up with the chip leader and then they made a chop. Mm -hmm. So he didn't, he hardly played a hand and he just watched everybody else make all of these ICM mistakes trying to play for the win. And this is a fallacy that people have. They're trying to play for the win um, when you should be laddering up. <laughs> and that's what uh, Dara was doing. So it's, there's these fallacies in poker that if you, if you hear somebody say playing for the win, um, you want him at your table because he's, <laughs> he's going to be making ICM mistakes. And Rob, kind of like you said at the very beginning of the show here, I mean, there are different times in the tournament where uh, the ICM is more of a factor, where playing for the win is a bigger mistake. When ICM is less of a factor, say at the very early stages of the tournament, or interestingly, in some cases, just after the bubble breaks, uh, playing for the win isn't necessarily the wrong thing to do under those circumstances because ICM pressure is less relevant. And this is one of the things that makes poker great, particularly tournament poker, is that every every hand, there's so many different factors that you can be considering. It's often competing <laughs> interests. Uh, and part of what uh, what makes someone really good at poker is not only knowing the hand ranks and the pot odds and you know when you've got the right equity to continue, but also knowing you know what part of the tournament am I in? Is this a time where I should be taking these chances to try and get a chip lead? Or are these times when I should just be cooling down laddering up trying to get to that next uh 
uh, pay jump or or to the bubble. Um, and that and that can be hard for inexperienced players to to sort of grasp intuitively as they as they play through the tournament structure. And I just want to make one clarification. When Rob says the right way to play, what he's talking about is the the way to try to win the most money. Mm. If you play for the win, you will probably win more tournaments than someone who does not. You will also make less money than someone who is playing up proper ICM strategy. Because you'll bubble more tournaments because you won't preserve your chip stack to that min cash or because well, you won't or, or because or... You, you won't right you won't have as many second and third places mm-hmm. you're gonna have mm-hmm. a lot more sixth or ninth places instead of that and you won't have enough first places to offset it so yeah. icm is really tailored to optimize your pocketbook not the number of trophies so if you're point. playing for bracelets then it doesn't matter. Yeah, if you got a, uh, you know, if you're if you're Bill Klein and you got all the money in the world, you don't care. Um, you can play anything you want, and it doesn't matter. You're playing for the win. But if you're trying to increase your ROI, um, playing for the win is not the way to go. It's playing to ladder um, and and make the most money that you can with the investment that you put into the tournament. Now, interestingly, it doesn't always mean knitting it up, though. Uh, we saw many examples where uh, when ICM pressure was great, even if you're one of those players in the, with the medium stack, you're still going to be making very aggressive actions and you're still going to be choosing to shove in circumstances that you might not otherwise. Um, part of the reason why you're going to be doing this is because if other players at the table are ICM aware they're going to sort of have to fold for the same reasons that we just talked about you having to fold when it getting close to the bubble, when ICM is a factor, because they want to preserve their stacks as well. Um, so it, it, it's not quite as simple as just tightening up and, and folding your way to the money. Uh, true ICM mastery involves knowing when are the times to apply the pressure to other players. And the only way to do that is by putting chips in the pot. And when you're doing that, you're focusing on certain players' stacks. So in other words, if you're a medium stack, you're not going to, and you've got the two chip leaders to your left, well, you're pretty much stymied. You're not going to be able to play a lot. You're not going to be able to get very aggressive because they have less ICM pressure than you do. Where if, if you're the short stack, you can do that. Now, if you're a medium stack and you have a short, a very short stack to your left, now is the time you can put a lot of pressure on him. Because he he is going to be risking his tournament life and you are not. So keeping in mind the types of players that you're going to be facing when you make an aggressive action is very important. Yeah, let's take another example. If we look at that final table hand, let's say that we have a top three stack and we're in the small blind. And the player to our left in the big blind has a medium stack. So we have them covered. And let's say that there are two really short stacks still in the tournament. So uh, the action folds around. The two short stacks are in late position. They fold as well. Now it's us in the small blind. And we just have this one player to the left who we cover. Now, just think about this for a second. If we go all in here, that player is going to be put to a very difficult decision. because. 
if they just fold, then there's two short stacks that in a couple orbits, they're probably going to bust and this player can just ladder up and make some money. But if they call, there's a chance that they're going to lose the tournament, even if they have a really good hand. Even if they have a really, really good hand, the way uh, equities run preflop in in No Limit Texas Hold'em is even with pocket aces, they're going to go home 20% of the time. And with kings, it's a lot more than that. And with ace-queen offsuit, it's a lot more than that. So they're going to have to fold some of these very, very strong hands because if they don't, there's a chance that they're going to lose and go home even if they had the best hand. So what does that mean for us as this player in the small blind that has a lot of chips? As you can kind of imagine, you can shove with a lot of hands. You can shove with a, a much wider range of hands than you might consider shoving with. Just open shoving, preflop, uh, because your opponent just has to fold, has to fold a lot. Um if they know what ICM is and if they're paying attention, yeah. if they're feeling that ICM pressure themselves, uh, part of the problem, I think, in the games that we play as recreational players, you know, hopefully we're playing in games where we have a skill edge, where we understand the theory of poker better than the people that we're playing against. And you might have that player in the big blind who's just not very ICM aware and they just they see a pretty good hand and they see your shove. And so they decide that they're going to call, even though they're shooting themselves in the foot by doing it, that they can shoot you in the foot at the same time. <laughs> and Really the only people that benefit are everyone else at the table. Who's just not involved in the hand. Um, so, so it really comes down to knowing the players that are at the table with you, knowing who you can apply pressure to and then just doing it in in the in the smart way where you're the one applying the pressure and not the one that has to sort of decide how to handle handle the pressure. That's right. Um, it's very important to understand your opponent's knowledge level. Mm. So are they ICM aware? And uh, this is something that we discuss quite a bit in our book study because we we see it a lot in the tournaments that we play that people are playing the same way they played at the beginning of the tournament that you mm -hmm. see the same types of hands you don't see you don't see um you know you see people do something and you you look at it from the through the lens of what we've learned in this book and you say well that is a huge mistake and people just are not ICM aware it's one of the last things that people learn so um, we learned all these nice concepts, but then we know we can't necessarily put them all into play <laughs> because we still have to take into consideration the knowledge level of the players that we're playing against. And are they ICM aware? So like you said, in that situation, yeah, if you know that the, the big blind is ICM aware, then you can shove any two because he's going to have to fold 85% of his hands. That means 85% of the time he's folding. And those times that he doesn't fold, you're going to have at least 30% equity anyway, no matter what. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, yeah, you can, but if he's not ICM aware and he's going to call with any pocket pair, he's going to call with any two broadways, he's going to call with any ace. Well, then you have to be a little more discerning about what hands you, you push with. Yeah, in fact, if you were sitting on my left in that spot, Rob, 
and I was in the small blind, I'd know that you were an ICM savvy player and I would be shoving a lot of the whole things that I might find in the small blind. But even if you, even if you were sitting there and you said to me, you know, Jim, I'm going to call. I'm just like, as it gets to me, if you say, Jim, I'm going to call any of your raises here. Just that simple knowledge means that now I'm now I'm the one that's under a lot of ICM pressure. I, I'm actually going to fold there a ton because even if I've got a really really good hand, I don't want to risk even even if I've got Ace Queen and you've got Pocket Eights. Like I don't want to take a, a coin flip that could really decimate my tournament stack here when all I have to do is fold for a couple orbits or really just play the nuts. Um, and let those small stacks bust out. It's all about letting those small stacks bust out and preserving your spot on the ladder. Yep. Um, one of the th- one another we talked about small stacks. One of the things that uh, people don't understand, you'll see it a lot in a tournament. Somebody will take a bad beat or just get take a big stack and get decimated down to two, three, four big blinds. The next hand, they just go all in. Because as mm-hmm. far as they're concerned, it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a mistake. That is a mistake. Short stacks should not gamble because they have more equity than they realize. That's one thing that ICM is taught, um, teaches you, is that you have more equity in the tournament than you realize you have. So I see this all the time where somebody gets down to that 10 big blinds because they took a big hit. You know, they were sitting there at 50 big blinds. They got involved with another guy that 40 big blinds and lost. Now they're sitting there with 10. It doesn't matter what their two cards are the next hand. They just go all in. Mm -hmm. Because as far as they're concerned, their tournament's over. Let's get it over with. Either I'm going to double up or go home. That's a mistake. So keep that in mind because they have more equity than they realize that they do. Yeah, that was actually an eye opener for me uh, watching as as Darren Barry put the equity tables together in the in the book that we were reading. Um, if I've got uh, 10 big blinds and you've got 100 big blinds and we're on the final table, you don't have 10 times as much equity as I do in the tournament. Um, now you are more likely to win the tournament than I am, but I am not such a dog as I as I might think that I am. And I don't want to give away all the secrets. So uh, folks, you, you really have to go and buy Endgame Poker Strategy, the ICM book uh, by Dario Carney and uh, Barry Carter. We'll, we'll just tease a couple more parts of it here. But it, it, being able to go through the book chapter by chapter, seeing the different tables and charts and graphs that they've put together, um, you know, you can believe it when you hear Rob say it, but if you want to learn it yourself, you really have to kind of go and see the math, uh, you know, see how they've shown their work, putting this stuff together. This isn't just opinion. This is theory and it's mathematically grounded. Um, so it's really, really, uh, really, really insightful uh, stuff that that one in particular helped me kind of appreciate, even as a short stack, how much equity I still have in this tournament. And, you know, it, that cliche about having a chip in a chair. It's really true. It's really true. Um, just having the difference between having one chip and having zero chips is is the biggest difference <laughs> in all the different chip stacks that we look at here. <laughs> so, Rob, there's a, the one thing that I think people don't think about as often on that level is uh, chopping. So you get into spots where you're at the end of the tournament. There's there's a few people left. You're trying to decide 
if you don't want to play the whole thing out, you know, how do we decide a fair way of divvying it up? And if you're, you know, we talk all the time about recreational players just having less experience in some of these areas and how expensive that can be. This is one of those areas. We don't we don't study ICM enough. We don't get enough live experience just playing in these ICM spots. And so we're not going to be as experienced in the real savvy players out there. And even something as mundane as chopping up uh, a prize pool at the end of a tournament, if you don't know ICM, players that know it better than you really can exploit you. That was another insight. That I, I they'll take advantage of you, definitely. Um, it goes back to what we were just talking about, how you have more equity than you think you. Mm-hmm. So when somebody's offering you a deal, uh, for instance, if you're the short stack, somebody may offer you the the last prize and say, okay, we'll give you the last prize because you're going to go out next anyway. Well, you have more equity than that. So that's a bad deal. And you're already so guaranteed the, that last prize. You know, correct. the next person that gets out, they're going to get that anyway. Correct. Um, but, correct. but there's a chance that you're going to win more than that. So if somebody else goes out before you, then you're going to ladder up. So mm-hmm. you do have more equity than you think you have. Um, so some of the key takeaways about deal making, think of deals like playing a new tournament with a higher buy-in. There's no bad time to propose a deal. Mm-hmm. Chip chop deals are usually bad for everyone, but the big stacks. So <laughs> don't take a chip stack deal unless you have most of the chips. So Rob, if you've right. got uh, 10 times as many chips as I do, I should not uh, take a deal where you get 10 times as much money as I do because I'm Correct. undervaluing my equity in the tournament. Correct. Okay. Keep in mind that even the chip leader cannot win more than the top prize. Good point. So his equity can never be more than what the top prize is and is always less than what the top prize is. In an ICM situation, even the lead chip leader, even if he has 10 times as many chips as everybody else in the tournament, he still can't win more than the top prize. Great point. So his equity can never be more than that. Uh, the best reason to deal is to reduce variance. So when you get, a lot of times you get to the final table, everybody's sitting there with, you know, five to 25 big blinds. It's, what is it? We uh, Kessler was talking about it today, an all-in fest, right? All oh, yeah, shove fest, all-in yeah. fest. It's just a yeah. shove fest. It's just, you know, so it's just who who ends up with, having the better hand each time. So there's a lot of variance in, in that scenario. So uh, at, that would be a good time to make a deal because then now we reduce the variance. Um, utility and time are perfectly good reasons to deal. So in other words, if, if you, um, let's say it's getting late in the night and you've got a big tournament scheduled the next morning mm-hmm. or the next day, you want to get to bed. Okay, let's make a deal because I don't want to sit here for the next three hours and play out for a difference of five or ten thousand dollars, when I've already I've already got you know seven thousand dollars locked up, um, uh, social pressure is not a good reason, mm. and I've seen this happen in uh, the s- small card rooms that I've played in, where the social pressure to make a deal is so much that people make a, a bad deal, just because they feel a lot of pressure and they don't want to be that guy, you know, <laughs> that guy that wouldn't yeah. deal. <laughs> Um, now if you're playing live, you try to find out what the money means to your opponents. So if the money doesn't mean anything to them, it's probably going to be pretty easy to make a chop or make some sort of a deal. 
Um, if the money is meaningless to them, yeah, it's going to be easy to make a deal. So um, chip leaders should reject saver deals. Short stacks should take them. A saver deal is, is a deal where um, they're giving away um, more. A saver deal is where they're giving the bubble player money. Ah, so in yes. other words, you, they're taking money off the top, off the chip, off the overall prize, the first place prize, and giving it to the bubble. And it's usually the amount of the buy-in or maybe a buy-in and a half, that type of thing. And now, Rob, I've been this, in a, is, this is the player that would typically bubble and receive nothing. Correct. But but correct. the tables decided or or you know, someone suggested that just to kind of move the game along or to make their life a little less painful. Let's just give them a buy-in and and sort of soften the blow a little bit. It's kind of, it's called a saver deal. And, and what it's supposed to do, it's supposed to um, move the tournament along. Like you say, if you're sitting at a bubble, you can sit at a bubble forever because nobody wants to bubble. But if you know that you're going to get your money back, well, you can be a little looser, a little more, you know, a little, so they call it a saver deal. They're good for the short stacks, but not for the chip leaders. Because the, the money is coming off the chip leader's stack, uh, potential prize. So the next thing, one of the other things that I've noticed, I've been in some tournaments where um, we make a deal to pay, the, to pay the bubble. And what it'll be is everybody at the table will say, okay, we're gonna, everybody is going to take $20 out of their pocket and pay the guy $20 when he bubbles, whoever yeah. that happens to be. And I've seen that happen too in some of the smaller rooms that I've played. <laughs> yeah, and it's too. it's kind of God, I don't really want to do this, but then there's that social pressure, you know. <laughs> you don't want to be that guy. Yeah, that's right. So sometimes you have to step away from the table because they don't want to see cash at the table, depending on the card room that you're playing in that kind well, of thing. Grand Casino Malax, they didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> you just the, hand them the twenty dollar bill across the table. All, the thing that always bugged me about that concept is it just it just changes the bubble. It just changes the bubble from being the eleventh right. guy to being the twelfth right. guy. So then the the one who goes home with nothing is the one who who busted one before the the bubbler. Right, and it doesn't actually change anything. We could just pay everyone back their buy in. We don't have to get together and play poker at all. Um, nobody ever <laughs> wants to bubble for God's sake. Uh, so yeah, that. As you can tell, that, that I get a little uh, I get a little animated thinking about that one because uh, you know it, there is an element of softening the blow and there is an element of kind of like moving the game along and, and I get all that but if if you let's say let's say the top twelve players got play, got paid if you were fourteenth you think that if you bust in fourteen it's the same as busting in thirteen because you're not going to get paid. So you take a, a a risk and you bust in 14. Now, all of a sudden, everyone who's left is saying, oh, well, let's just pay the 13th guy the bubble and let's, you know, let's soften their blow. Well, where's who's softening my blow? <laughs> <laughs> I would have played well, that differently if I'd known that the real bubble was at 13 and not at 12. Um, you shouldn't have. <laughs> Because you didn't know that at the time. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, that's my and, that's my issue with the saber. Yeah, I 
like I say, in very small tournaments, um, you will see the saver deal quite a bit. Um, but as the tournaments get bigger, uh, bigger buy-in tournaments, more player type tournaments, you're not going to see the saver deal very often. Mm-hmm. So I've never seen a saver deal in a big buy-in event, anything over, you know, $250, $300 type event. I've never seen a saver deal. Whereas the little 150 weekend event, you see saver deals all the time. Yeah, yeah I think I, I think part of it is if you have like less than two tables that uh, cash, then it's easier. Or if it's a yeah, one table yeah. cash, whereas if you've got 12 tables that cash, you can't even coordinate a saver deal. No, Good point. no you can't do a saver deal. That's why, you know, the saver deals are usually in a tournament where five people are getting paid. You're mm-hmm. sitting there at the final table of nine and a couple of people get knocked out. Now you're sitting at six and you're going, okay. We could sit here forever at six. Let's uh, pay the bubble. Let's pay that six player, and it'll make everybody looser and and move the tournament along. Yeah, and of you course, know, if you're no, let's take it, John. Well, I was just going to say the share a personal story here. The best deal I ever made. Uh, I was on an Annie Up cruise. We were playing at the final table. I probably had there were three of us left, and I had a little over half the chips in play. Excellent. And as soon as we got to three, they just decided, uh, why don't we just give you first place and then we'll take, we'll chop second and third. And it was like, uh, yeah, I want, I kind of <laughs> wanted to play it out, but how do you not take that? How do you not take first yeah. place money? Yeah. You're, no getting, kidding. <laughs> you're getting more equity than your chips were worth. Yes. I, I had a similar story. We got, I was playing a little three table tournament. And we got down to nine players and somebody said, well, let's chop it. And everybody said, sure. Except for me. I said, no, I'm not chopping at nine. I mean, it's only playing. It's only paying five. I'm not chopping at nine. And so we kept playing, kept playing. And I took out the bubble. I kept, they kept trying to chop and I kept saying, no, no, no. And I finally took out the bubble and we're down to the last five players. And they said, let's chop. And I said, okay. And I didn't have that many more chips than everybody else. I mean, I was a chip leader, but not by that much. And I said, okay, I'll take first place. You guys chop up the rest. And they said, (laughs) okay. Right. (laughs) Yep. Okay. I'm fine with that. Yep. But I was the one that would not make a chop at any time during the tournament. So they knew that unless they did this deal, I wasn't going to chop. So they were very incentivized to chop with me and give me first place money. There you go. So there's there's like an image play element to that as well. You know, um, there's never a bad time to introduce the idea of chopping a pot. But, you know, being the one who doesn't want to chop, it has some pros and cons. There is sort of that social element of it as well. People can kind of resent that you don't want to chop. And now you're the one that's making them continue to play poker, which you'd think they'd enjoy, given the circumstances. <laughs> no, they but, wanted to play blackjack. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But that's a, that's a good point. And I, you know, people um, I've heard stories of some people even getting paid more than first place money just because they had such a preponderance of the chips that were in play at the time that people make silly decisions. And, uh, you know, at this at the top of the show, we talked about sort of some of the uh, more intuitive elements of ICM pressure and how it kind of means tightening up in various spots. But I think you can see from the way we've te- teased it out. Understanding ICM can be very valuable in, in all different elements of your poker tournament play, even down to the mundane details of uh, of chopping at the end, for sure. 
And chopping at the end, it's never a bad idea to do an ICM chop. Mm-hmm. If the room offers you an ICM chop, it's not a bad deal because you're going to get your exact equity that you have coming in a tournament at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Now, if you feel oh. another thing that Rob didn't say, but you know, if you feel like you have a skill edge on the table, then don't chop or or you know hold out for a better deal. Um, if you feel like you've got the chip lead, but you've just kind of gotten lucky and a lot of the other players there are better than you, then you might be incentivized to take a little less money than you might be due otherwise, just in order to kind of seal this baby up and uh, uh, get out of there with with a win. That's that's not uncommon either. And keep in mind what Dara said is that most players really have more than a 5% edge on everybody else. Mm. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to, if that's your, if that's your, your take, you're going to go in saying, Hey, I'm a better player than, first of all, it's very difficult to say that at a table to say, I deserve 5% more because <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm a much better I'm... player than you because nobody can, be- <laughs> nobody thinks that they're that bad. Right. Right. <laughs> Especially not when it's going to take money out of their pocket. Right. Uh, exactly. That's, that's, that's exactly. a really good point. That's a really good point. All right. Well, um, like I said, folks, we could go on for another hour, but uh, you really should go uh, check out uh, Endgame Poker Strategy, the ICM book. It's available at Amazon. Um, if you go to rec.poker slash doke, that's D-O-K-E. That's uh, Darrow Carney's Wrecking Crew page. You can find a link to it there as well, along with uh, the other books that he's worked on with Barry, um, like the... Uh, satellite one and the pko one whose names escape me at the moment because i'm a terrible PKL poker also. strategy and satellite poker strategy there you go so it, they're it, very consistent some, they are he's got the name. suite of books all yeah. set up there um rob john uh josh is there anything that we really must add to this conversation before we uh before we close out today's show feels like a pretty just good join rob in the po- in the book clubs and you'll get even more of this great stuff yeah, and Rob Rob's too modest to say it himself, but honestly, the work that he does in between the sessions, putting these slides together, uh, going through the the chapters, sort of curating the content for you so that you get the kind of nice bite-sized pieces that are going to be the most applicable to your game is really valuable stuff. And being able to review it every two weeks as you're reading it with a group of like-minded recreational poker players is just a great way to really get a lot more out of the material than you would otherwise. I know it does for me, so so I really appreciate that. Um, all right, well, then I guess to, to all our premium members out there, uh, thanks for all your support, folks like Josh Campbell and a million other people that uh, make the magic happen here at Rec Poker. Of course, I have to thank uh, Josh for joining us tonight with John and Rob. Uh, the Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack, and Casino, our sponsors, and Mark Rashawn over at Website Amp, and you, the listeners, who we couldn't do it without. So thank you so much, and we will see you next week.